Turn with me now, if you would, to Genesis chapter 30. I'll be reading verses 1 through 24. Genesis 30, 1 through 24. Beginning to read with verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Rachel saw that, she bore Jacob no children. Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son, Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Then when Leah saw Uh, that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, A troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called, so she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. May God's word be blessed. May we consider it here this morning as we go to the word of God. For the visitors that are with us, I've been doing a series uh, through Genesis, looking specifically at the family. Uh, Normally, when you work through the text of Scripture, you look for the major doctrines that are in each passage, and you try to highlight them, especially as they point to or illuminate the work of Christ in the New Testament or the kingdom of God. 
But in this series, we have been focusing on the family and just the the insights and the uh, input that God would have to give us regarding our families. And uh, I found this extremely interesting, and uh, I really I really marveled sometimes that in in going about it the normal way, I've missed so much that is really helpful to our families today. One of the things, one of the incidental things that come out of these the last few pat the last few uh, sermons that I've had is that we we sometimes think that our families are pretty messed up. You know, we, we look at our weaknesses and we think, oh, you know, why, how can our how can I be a good father when this has happened or that's happened or this child's done this or that child's done that? And uh, but when you come away from these passages on the the, the, the sons of Jacob, or Jacob himself and his relationships with Laban, just these crazy things. You begin to think, you know, we have we have problems in our family. But, you know, they're not really so bad. They, the, 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 the patriarchs had tremendous problems. And the irony there is that uh, with these patriarchal families, we think we think of them. They were the only families in the whole world that knew that had any knowledge of God. So these are, in a sense, the elect families of their day, and yet they're having all of these troubles. The, the irony is about. You'd think that the way God would order it would be that his families would be you know, perfect. They wouldn't have any problems. They would just be straight arrows, straight road, everything would be easy, and he would bless, he, they'd come into the world, he'd bless them, and you know, the world would see uh, that the way of the Lord is so preferable. We would be fools not to follow him that way. But it, it's not that way. Um, God makes his revelations to these people. He calls them to follow him, but he doesn't make their way automatically easy. And it's, it's just very intriguing. So uh, as we come to this 30th chapter, we, we're, we're focusing now on um, uh, what happened particularly relative to Rachel because of the last chapter, chapter 29, we, we saw where Leah was having children. You know, right and left, and uh, and she was uh, she was really proud of the fact that she was one productive woman, and then and she you know you remember the story of how Leah and Rachel got married that uh, the father Laban was kind of a, a trickster and he didn't want his older old younger daughter to marry before the young the older daughter, and so he basically he kept changing the contracts that he made with with Jacob, and. Jacob, to his credit, kind of just dealt with it and continued to live with it, these changes that Laban was making. And um, ultimately, God blessed him for his patience and his endurance. But it wasn't pretty. There were lots of twists and turns. So here's this man that he loved. He, he wanted to marry Rachel. He was tricked into marrying Leah. It was only in the morning after he woke. And they they'd had intimacy the night before. They'd begun their marriage in the dark. She was under a veil. And uh, he wakes up and he finds this, this is a different woman than he thought he married. But that's the way things started for him. So we find now in chapter 30 the story of how, uh, how Rachel finally had a child, the very last verse of the chapter. And before that, all of the wranglings and all of the problems that went into the issue before. Uh, and these are those that are so illustrative for us and helpful in our understanding our own lives. And sometimes the twists and the turns that God brings us in, in terms of these lies. So you've got the outline there. And um, if we begin with the first point is wife number two loses control. 
Wife number two loses control, and Jacob has to rebuke her as a husband. Now, no husband wants to be placed in the way that he must rebuke his wife, because there are always costs to rebuking your wife. It is not a straight line. It's not easy. It's hard for the wives, too, to if they ever rebuke their husbands in a most humble way. <laughs> but, you know, when we have differences between the two of us, it's not, it's not an easy thing. And so here we see that Rachel, she had endured for many years her sister being productive, having these babies. And, uh, but you know that there was a strain psychologically. She bears it, she bears it, and bears it, and then one day she erupts. And this is the story of that eruption. It says in verse 1, Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, uh, J- Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Now we know the tone of this. We know the sense of it because of Jacob's reaction afterward. Jacob got downright angry at his wife. She was coming to him with the idea that uh, it was his time to, to be a man and to, to, to turn over a new leaf, to, to affect her life, to change things. She wanted children, and she doesn't just ask, oh, Jacob, I, you know, let's, pray about, let's pray some more about children. No, she gets up in his face. And she says, uh, uh, give me children. That's an, the imperative. Give me children or else I die. She says, she is, uh, uh, if I say it that way, that's really cheating you in the sermon. She says, give me a baby or I'm going to die. And, and it wasn't just, there was no humor in it. There was no, there was no levity. There was no lightness of spirit. She was at her wit's end. Now, this was a day where, uh, the, the, the corporate world didn't exist. Uh, women weren't getting any joy or satisfaction out of some job. This was a day in which if you didn't have children, uh, you know, you wondered what your purpose was. You wondered if you even mattered to the Lord and to your husband. We know that, that uh, in Jacob's mind, he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. He intended to marry Rachel. He, he, they, Rachel and he had this romantic thing going between them that they were really drawn to each other right from the start. And so there was every reason for Leah to be jealous of Rachel. And we see that come out on the text here too with the, with the mandrakes. And they're talking about that. You know, Leah says, is it not enough that you've stolen my husband? Well, you know, this is girl talk because she knew in her heart that her husband or her father had stolen uh, him from her, from 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 Rachel, it was just such a wrangle. But it all comes out. You know, it's one thing to repress these things, to be mature about it, to live with these things. But it's very if we if we have disagreements about the way things are, they usually come boiling out at some point, and then we're usually sorry that we said it. You know, we we think oh, I really I really blew it that time. You know, I did, I I let it get to me, and I just over. Overbore the situation. I lost my temper. So, uh, uh, so she charges Jacob. She says, "You know, give me a, give me babies, or I'm going to die." And now Jacob's frustration comes out because he loves this woman. He's wanted to bless her with children. That that's the natural instinct of his life. It, it, it's his, it's his, the wife that he loves the most. And here God has shut up her womb for some reason. And he's frustrated by it. He's prayed. They, they both prayed together, no doubt, many times. But no child has come. 
And it's one thing to be patient for a day. Another to be patient for a week and a month. But as year after year toils on, uh, the idea of the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of God begins to wear a little thin with us because God is not doing what we think he should do. It's difficult for us to bear with that. And so both of these people, they love each other. Normally they would deal with each other in a better way, but on this occasion, they really flew into a wrath. And Jacob's, Jacob, was his anger was aroused against Rachel, and he says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now this is a very good, theological, it's a very accurate statement, you see. He, under, he and Rachel understood something about the sovereignty of God. They understood that God was God, and that men were men. They understood that the, a God, uh, uh, the God of the universe, is different by in nature and in being from all of the creatures. We get confused about that many times. But Jacob had, had that down straight. He didn't have everything down straight, as we'll find out soon, with his marital relationships here. But he had that down straight. And so he, he rebukes her. He says, am I in the place of God? He says, you know, I, I'm not God. I don't have control over these things. Uh, very often our wives will uh, torture us with their complaints, and we wish we could do better as, as husbands. You know, and uh, sometimes it's economics, you know, and we think, think to ourselves, if my wife wanted a CEO salary, she should have married a CEO. She just married this poor plebeian worker. You know, what What can I do? I'm doing my best. I'm working. I'm doing everything I can to be strong and to lead my family. But I'm, I'm just, I'm not that. I'm me. Well, Jacob basically reacts that way. Am I in the place of God who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? So, um the argument ceases, you know, they both blew off, they got what they wanted to have said, and uh, so we, we reach point two here. Wife number two introduces the swap with Bilhah. Now, we know the pattern <clears throat> that Adam and Eve gave us. Uh, we know that um, Jacob and Rachel, they all knew the story of Noah and the fact that Noah had one wife and that Noah and his wife and his children were saved by the ark. So there, was, there, was, there were lots of examples of monogamy in their historical past. But for whatever reason, this was not the pattern of the day. And uh, there was a lot of polygamy, which means having more than one wife, um, uh, having servant women of your wife, uh, serve as surrogate uh, mothers for children for you. And in that way, uh, a father could have more children uh, than maybe just one woman could bear him. And so in a day when children were a man's wealth and a, 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 the future for a family and a tribe, um, uh, this God worked providentially and, and uh, it, it worked for a blessing, but it wasn't, it was no credit it was no credit to the human beings at the time that they didn't understand these things better. It was just a time, though, when God, God stresses in different ages, God stresses different truths. Um, um, in one day in America, it was it, the, the idea of private property, working for what you, uh, uh, what you had as a possession was very clear in people's minds. And uh, at a certain point, you know, within the last hundred years, we began this idea of, of uh, 
consensual stealing through the vo through voting systems, and the fact that uh, uh, you know if if fifty one percent of the people vote for some sort of a thieving scheme or some sort of a reassessment scheme of money, then that's that's sanctified by the consent of the of the majority. It's sort of like uh, uh, consensual adultery. It's very popular today. If as long as the two people agree on it. Well, they, they're, they're, they're open to all kinds of uh, adulteries and, and fornications and, uh, and uh, uh, wickedness on that level. But they say, well, it's, we, we consented to it. Gambling, the whole gambling enterprise today is based upon the idea of consensual stealing. If we get together, if the society gets together and we, we agree to run a state lottery, as long as we consent to it, that sanctifies the thievery. Mutual consent doesn't sanctify anything. God's, God's law sanctifies what's right and wrong. So, uh, but in this day, one of the things that there was kind of a consent about was the idea of uh, polygamy or having more than one wife or having whatever the relationship was that we see bore out here. And so here Rachel gets the great idea that she will uh, take her trusted servant lady, her first servant lady, who is the most faithful to her, Bilhah, and give, give Bilhah to her husband so that he might bear children through her and that then they would be accredited to Rachel because of the relationship that she had to, for, to Bilna. And uh, in God's economy, even though these children came through different women, they all came through Jacob, the head, uh, the head of the family, Jacob. And so they become, they become truly Jacob's sons. And uh, we sang, in, at the, first, the very first psalm that we sang today, the, the last stanza says, or no, I'm sorry, uh, the, for the first stanza, the bottom, uh, well, I'll think, uh, verse, verse 3, Salem, well-constructed city, there assemble all the tribes, tribes that are Jehovah's own. And so, um, all of these boys became the heads of different tribes, and the tribes became analogous to America, different states. So that you had 12 states in the nation of Israel, 12 states, one nation, and each of these boys, no matter how they came about, no matter whether they came from Bilhah or Rachel or Leah, uh, uh, no matter wh which woman they came from, they all became legitimate sons of Jacob, and, and ultimately, they, they received an inheritance. Uh, remember, Joseph, um, Joseph's, uh, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and, uh, uh, I can, uh, can't think, but uh, uh, they, they ultimately received uh, property inheritance too because the tribe of Levi did not receive a land inheritance. So uh, Ephraim and Manasseh each uh, became one of these 12 tribes also. So uh, here we go, and um, uh, Rachel gives his, uh, his, her maid Bilhah to Jacob, and he uh, sleeps with her, and, and they obtain a child through that. And now each of the children is named here, and the, something that is behind their name uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of Bilhah's first conception, uh, she said, God has judged my case, and he has heard my voice and given me a son. So she called his name Dan. 
And then the second name was Naphtali because she had wrestled with, uh, wrestled with her sister and wrestled with God. And so each of these names uh, means something to do with that phrase that uh, in terms of Naphtali, uh, the idea of wrestling and, and obtaining something through the wrestling match. And so, um, so we have this, uh, uh, but when we think about it, you know, uh, the idea in modern day, the idea of wife swapping is a, we'd consider it a very terrible thing, a terrible thing. Uh, we tend to sanctify it in this case because it's in the Bible, <laughs> but it's not, it's not a good thing in, in, many, in many senses. And uh, there, there are better ways to do this, but this is the way this is God. Uh, like I said, in different ages, he, he blesses us with different insights. And at this time, this whole age was marked by a lot of deference to polygamy and to um, having children in this way. And so, uh, but it, it did not lead, it did not lead to a peaceful family or easy things. Uh, most of the time in these days where people would, uh, the, the, you would have more than one wife, uh, you they would, instead of having different houses, different rooms and houses and that sort of thing, many times they would be living in tents. And so you'd have separate tents. And so uh, the enclave, the, the, the camping uh, arrangement for Jacob would be set up so that uh, Rachel would have her tent and Leah would have her tent and then uh, probably Bilhah and uh, and uh, uh, the other uh, lady, the, uh, the other servant, uh, she would have her tent. And so <clears throat> when, uh, I don't know whether Bilhah came to Rachel's tent and uh, or that whether she sent Jacob to her, Bilhah's tent, we don't know, but it worked out. And so these uh, these servant ladies began to have children for their uh, master, for their for wife number one or wife number two, Leah or Rachel. Now, the third point is that wife number one, that is Leah, improvises with a four-way via <laughs> Zilpah. Her womb has been closed, but she sees what Rachel's doing. So she figures, I got, I got, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I may be, I may be slow, but I'm not dumb. Uh, so I will just work on this th- same principle. And so here's, I just, I have to laugh at this when I think of Jacob, you know, he fell in love with one girl and now he's, you know, bang, bang. How, how, how does this work? Uh, I like it when in the Mandrake situation, he comes in from the field and there's Leah, you're mine tonight. <laughs> I've got a claim on you, you know. Uh, we, as Christian people, we're amazed by these kinds of circumstances. And again, we may think that we've got troubles as a family. Well, we don't, we don't have anything this bad, and we're not even close And um, for most of us. So, but we see that this is what is, uh, what is happening in the whole situation. Um, point four, I'm going to skip here a little bit faster, but point four the Mandrake mystery, uh, verse 14 and following, uh, it says, Now Reuben went in the days of wheat, the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And Rachel, then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Well, what is a mandrake? A mandrake is a, a small plant, looks like a rat, looks like a, a beet, except the, the, the top part, the beet part, is not quite so big. And at the bottom, the roots divide out into two. Two main roots, 
And so it looks like a they, they, they thought it looks like a little man. The, 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 the part that grew under the ground looks like a little man. And the mandrakes were, it was a plant, and it was fairly, it, it, it only grows in this part of the world. So that's why you don't have, you don't grow, man, you can't go down to the Kroger's and get mandrake seeds. This is something that grows in, and they are totally abundant over there. So when Reuben found these mandrakes, uh, it was a good find for him because the mandrake was not a, a simple vegetable. It, and in fact, it was toxic. It had, if you if prepared in the wrong way, uh, a mandrake could actually be poisonous. Um, but it did have some mild narcotic uh, capacity to itself. So it could loosen a person up and make a person feel good. And then it also, uh, it was also considered a bit of a love potion. That is that whoever would, whoever would, uh, however the mandrakes were prepared, I don't know whether it was the juice or whether they'd boil them. And, you know, we have plants today that are fairly toxic in one case, but if they're prepared the right way, then you can use it for medicine or something like that. That's kind of what the mandrake was. And so, um, um, it, um, um, it, 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 in the in the day, it had, it was kind of a superstition that the mandrake could help you to bear have children. It would help your man to be more in love with you. These are things, these are folk tales, you know. But what's important here is that all the women knew about it. The women had it, you know. So the minute Rachel sees that mandrakes have been found, she's thinking, "Uh oh." Leah's got the advantage. She's found the hidden love potion that now is going to bring Jacob to her tent more often and bear her more children, and uh, send her, her and her maid. And I, you know, and so, uh, so she tries to make this deal for, to get some mandrakes. Leah is no fool. It's her. It's her son that's found this stuff. It's hers, and so she's not going to share it. She she thinks she's got the advantage of uh, of this over Rachel. And so Rachel says to her, makes a deal. She says, okay, I will, I will let you lie with Jacob more often or in the next phase here. You, you can have Jacob if you give me some mandrakes because Rachel's thinking, I, you know, I still might get pregnant. With these mandrakes, I might still get pregnant myself. So that's, her, that's what she's aiming at. And, uh, and so she, she makes this deal, and Rachel is so thrilled. Now, you see, Rachel's power over this whole situation is that Jacob really does love her more. I mean, Jacob just has something for her. His original love was for Rachel. And so based upon that, she could use that against Leah and get this extraction of the mandrake promise out of her. So <laughs> as I said earlier, poor Jacob comes wandering home, you know, like the dumb guy that we normally are. You know, duh. We, they have no idea what's going on in the family environment or the deals that these women are making behind his back. And Rachel comes on. She says, you're mine, you know, this way. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, he goes into her and uh, she has more children. And uh, um, and she even says to uh, Jacob, she said uh, she, she speaks of this as she's hired him with my son's mandrakes. Um, and so uh, God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now, the numerology here is some people would point to this sort of thing and say, well, see, here's the Bible contradicts itself. 
Leah's having her first son. Rachel's having her first son. One, the, the numbers are all mixed up here. Well, they're just counting by the woman, by what, how many children each woman had. And so uh, Leah has her fifth son, and then she's given uh, another son, a sixth son, uh, and then she has a daughter named Dinah. <clears throat> and, uh, and then, you know, <laughs> I really don't think it was the mandrakes, but it was, it was the Lord. It says in verse 22, and finally, uh, God sovereignly intervenes with jo bringing Joseph to Rachel. Then God, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her, that is her prayers. He opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. And so here's this really poor girl that has prayed and prayed and prayed. And uh, the, the Lord has his own wisdom for how he orchestrates our lives. That's the thing we need to have confidence in. No matter how he has orchestrated our lives, God has a wisdom there. And when we're ready to die, we shall look back and we'll understand more of God's dealings with us as individuals and how he blessed us despite the fact that our lives were not exactly like another person's life, how God blessed us through our lives. And we can look back and we can see the prodigious production of our lives even if we didn't have children, even if we didn't have a business, or even if we didn't do this or didn't do that. God is mysterious in his sovereignty, but always wise and always blessed. In a sense here, you see all of the wranglings of these women. We see all the wranglings of Laban. We see how Jacob is trying to deal with all of these people around him. His, quote, family, his crazy family. He's trying to deal with all this. And in the end, it's like God says, okay, I'm putting an end now to all of your imaginations, all of your plans, all of that kind of thing, all of these methods by which one or the other of you are having children, obtaining children. Now I'm going to act. That's verse 22. God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. It's just utterly astounding here that God has the power, the, that, that kind of power over us, that he can open up the womb of a barren woman, that he can close the womb of a, of a fertile woman like Leah. It's amazing how God is, his sovereignty is just unbelievable. It goes way above what we can ask or think. But when we think about this, we think, well, it's really not so astounding. Did God not create all the things that there are? Is there any way in which God's capacities are limited? Of course not. He made the mosquito as well as the cow. He made the, the eagle that flies high in the air as well as the ant that crawls upon the earth. There's nothing that God cannot do. If you've prayed for something in your life and God has not done it, it's not because or from the impotency of the Lord. God is not impotent whatsoever God wills. In the heavens and the earth, the Bible says, he brings it to pass. Ours is but to humble ourselves before the Lord and recognize the great fecundity, the great fertility, the great potentiality, the great productivity of the Lord. Even today in the world, there are nations that are productive, there are nations that are not. There are nations that have wealth. There are nations that are not. There are leaders who God raises up, and sometimes they're iniquitous people. 
God has his reasons for that. And then there are people that God brings down for his own reasons. We cannot read the tapestry with our the tapestry of history with our human eyes. But it is all in the hands of the Lord. And the more we understand the, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the better off we'll be, the better off well, the better well, the better we'll be able to deal with life. The happier we'll be. Our sadness will be diminished because we'll realize that if something has not come to us, it's not because of our deficiency, per se. Maybe because of our sin in some tangential way, but it's, it's ultimately because God has willed it, that God has desired it. And so if we get on board with God's sovereignty, it is a, a happy thing. And uh, um, we can be sick, we can lose our hair. All kinds of things can happen to us in this life. But if we recognize that there is a good God behind these things, it, it goes uh, very well with us. Now, if you, if you ask yourself, what is, uh, what is the purpose of all this? Or what can we think about this? A couple things, a couple applications from this. Uh, first is the ignorance of men generally. When we look at the mess of this family situation, we realize that this relate this reduces to kind of cultural stupidity, uh, cultural ignorance. Um, we can think certain things about our day that that uh, you know we can see how there's a stupidity that marks the culture of men, but um, there should there shouldn't be anything more plain based upon the creation. There shouldn't be anything more plain than that one believing man ought to marry one believing woman and that they ought to be to, committed to each other for the rest of their lives. There ought to be no idea of a divorce or adultery or all these kinds of things. That ought to be plain. Uh, there's a lot of talk today even in reform circles about natural reason, about natural revelation, about things that we know instinctively. I think that they give too much credit to some senses to that, but this kind of a text here shows you how how people can make mistakes. Whole cultures of people can make tremendous mistakes. Um, smart people can make mistakes. Uh, talking to George about the Agway Corporation, he said, well, the problem was that they just didn't know how to go with the times. They didn't know the changes that they should make. So they, what, what this reduces to is that they got some of the smartest CEOs in the country to come and run that organization. If you were on the board of directors, you know, when you came in, all the secretaries would straighten up because you were you were the intelligent people of the of the corporation. And what did the all of the smarts, what did all of this intelligence do? It ran the company into the ground. I know uh, I was reading a story about this not too long ago that I shared with George this morning or yesterday. And uh, the fact that um, uh, there are one of the great billionaires of America uh, said how we take it for granted that we can transfer the wealth of a corporation from one generation to the next. He said, that is far from simple. And he went on to talk about this, about how the smartest men in the world make really big mistakes, huge mistakes that run their companies into the ground. They've got all the advantages over another company, but the other company prospers and they go downhill because of uh, the fact that they just aren't as smart as they think. Uh, we can see this in terms of the times of Jacob, the times of the people of that day. And, um, and then we can think of how 
this relates to us as individuals. There's ignorance of men generally and there's ignorance of men specifically, as we've talked about with these CEOs. There's our ignorance. The, 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 the greatest intelligence of America, the university systems, uh, the business corporations, the CEOs, they, they all work together. As I kind of flippantly talk about it on Facebook, I say they lied, cheated, and steal to get President Biden elected. They put their finger that this is our guy. This is, our, this is the guy. This is the racehorse we're going to bet on. This is the future of America. And ever since then, everything has gone wrong. I, I, it's just amazing. It's humorous. The Lord is joke, playing jokes upon us sometimes by, because we defer so much to our nat, human natural intelligence. Uh, we know who uh, is smart. We know who really deserves to be the doctor so-and-so, professor so-and-so in the school. And in the end, you come to the place where you say, uh, stories like this teach us that people really hardly know anything. You really have to fall down upon your knees and pray, God, if you have some company, God, help me to be to have the insights that I need to run this company. Because I know, based upon human history, I know it, it uh, it's not going to be easy. Are the founding of America. Think about this. America started out in the late 1700s, basically one of the poorest countries in the world, the less capital than anyone else. You have the French, the Italians, the Germans, the English. They all had tons more capital. 1776, 17, uh, when, we, when we started, it was like that. 1899, barely 100 years later, there were articles written that, in, that, that agreed that America was now the most powerful nation in the world. You think about that. What, what changed? What did, these, what did these sly Americans do that, that made them pass Italy and France and Germany and Great Britain in terms of, uh, of uh, national power, national wealth? The only difference really between all of them was that all of these other countries had bureaucracies that wanted to dominate the trade. In other words, they didn't like the idea of free trade. They didn't like the idea of people making their own decisions. They, everybody thought, I can make a better decision than my neighbor. And when you get that together and you elect a governor or a president, then, then surely that is the wise man. And, uh, and so in 100 years, based on just the freedom of individual movement, America became more productive than any other country in the world. Now, what did they do in the next 100 years? They worked as hard as they could to take, to take that freedom back and to begin making decisions from each, uh, uh, for each other. That's the, that's the only basic difference between 21st century America and 18th century or 19th century America. But it's all based, you see, on, this, on, this, on these uh, few understandings of knowledge. What do men know? How intelligent really are they? And when you study the story of Jacob and his family, you see, and the culture of that day, you see that there's all kinds of stupidities that are reigning and running wild. Now, the amazing thing is that through all of this, the God of the Bible has his way. The God of the Bible does his thing. Out of all of this, he brings forth Joseph. And we're going to see in the future how Joseph is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You had all these wranglings. The women are trying, they're struggling mentally. How can I get ahead? How can Rachel, how can I get ahead of Leah? Leah, how can I get ahead of Rachel? There's all of this mental gymnastics going on. And in the end, God brings his greatest blessing through the child that he brings to pass, Joseph. And that is completely analogous or parallel to him bringing forth his only begotten son, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Monogamy took a huge leap forward with the coming of Christ. It was like Christ, when, he, when Christ became the groom of the church and he became the, the, the husband of the church, the church became culturally smarter. The families became more stable. Uh, the 2,000-year the, the, the reign of Christendom began in the first century, and it continued. All of these other kingdoms came and went, came and went. But Christendom rose up, took many forms in Europe and around the world, took many forms, but uh, there was a great blessing that came from that because of God's influence, especially his influence through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. When, we, when it became clear that there was a way to have sure standing before the Lord, to know that you would not be judged by God, that God would bless you through this mechanism of his son, his only begotten son. It did something to people's lives. It, it's so much easier to live life if you don't feel guilty, if you're not afraid of God's judgment. You, you're afraid of the, the haunting specter that you feel is chasing you through life, dogging all of your relationships. It's so much freeing, so much more free to know that you're forgiven and endowed by the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a blessing, and it has real uh, cultural, logical effects upon your family and then the society around you. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we, we thank Thee for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for Thy wisdom. We thank Thee for Thy sovereignty. We even thank Thee for these wild stories about family life before Christ and how the greatest families of the day still had so many struggles. We pray that today that you would bless us in our struggles. We pray that you would make sense of the craziness that we see around us. We pray that thou wouldst be our God and our Lord and that you would dominate our culture and our day and our decisions and our families. Oh, Lord, help us not to be foolish. Help us to walk in the ways of the Lord. Help us to trust in these binding ethical things that you've set down before us, even though they might not prove to be fruitful right away. Help us to have a long-term understanding of what wisdom is and foolishness. And help us to follow in the ways of thine only begotten Son, even our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.